This episode of Radio Drama Revival is brought to you by Audio Fiction 101. The people who brought you Wolf 359, Zero Hours, and Time Bombs are teaming up once more to bring you Audio Fiction 101, a new course that teaches you the ins and outs of writing an audio drama, and then walks you through rigorous exercises to solve narrative challenges in audio. World building, writing for the ear, plot structure, this course is over three hours of video content with Zach Valenti, Sarah Shackett, and Gabrielle Urbina, teaching you everything they've learned over the past few years of producing, studying, living, breathing, and eating audio fiction. The course has visuals, it has animations, and it comes with companion worksheets for you to do on your own time. Head to learn.fearofpublicshame.com to see the course offering, sample a few videos, and read the FAQ. Need-based scholarships are available to qualifying applicants. Just send an email with the phrase Audio Fiction Scholarship in the subject line to Zach, Sarah, and Gabrielle at fearofpublicshame at gmail.com. And when you're ready to check out, click the gray text that says Have a Coupon and enter the code RADIODRAMA, all one word, for 15% off your order. That's learn.fearofpublicshame.com, coupon code RADIODRAMA. This week, Elders and Origins, Queer Representation in Children's Media, and the Magic Possibility of Forests. I sit down with Kevin Snipes, the writer of The Two Princes, for all that and more, right here on Radio Drama Revival. Hey folks, welcome to Radio Drama Revival, the podcast that showcases the diversity and vitality of modern audio fiction. I'm your host, David Reinstrom. I hope you had a pleasant Christmas, New Year's, Hanukkah, Solstice, Kwanzaa, or Festivus, because guess what? I got you something. It's an interview with the marvelous, insightful Kevin Snipes, the creator of The Two Princes. This interview contains spoilers for the first season of the show, so if you are a person who assiduously avoids spoilers, hold off on this interview until you've listened to the first full season. Kevin was a great interviewee who readily accepted all of my left-field questions about his childhood in the swamps of Florida, and I hope you enjoy hearing the conversation as much as I had conducting it with Kevin. Let's get to it. Kevin Snipes, welcome to Radio Drama Revival. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. So, I, I read in a feature written by Morgan Delisle on Podchaser that The Two Princes began as a book you'd written for your nephew to build out the family library. What, what can you tell me about that book? Uh, sure. Yes, I can tell you uh, so much about that book. So, the, um, the whole idea for The Two Princes began when my nephew Jonah was born um, almost a decade ago. And um, he and his family, they're, they're, they're big readers, um, both he and his, now, now I have two uh, nephews, uh, he and his little brother, they both love books, love Harry Potter. Um, I was going to ask, I was, I was poking around on Instagram and I just saw, uh, you had gotten like, I don't know, nine months or so ago, you got like a really cute postcard from Harry Potter world that said like, P.S. this was written <laughs> with a quill. Which nephew was that from? That was from, from the nephew, from Jonah, yes. Okay. He was visiting Harry Potter World for the first time and was so, so, so excited. And yes, he, um, so he wrote me a letter on a quill and I got a, got a letter from Harry Potter World six weeks later. Apparently that's how long <laughs> it takes for uh, magical mail to get from Orlando, Florida to, um, to New York. But yes, that is the same nephew. Um, so yeah, when he was born, I started, so I just started buying him um, children, picture books, children's books, you know, for every birthday or holiday, I would I would just get him a new a, a bunch of new books, and um, and after a while, I started noticing that there just wasn't any queer content in any of these books, and that's not you know certainly not unusual. I mean, that's kind of historically how it's been. They're just people tend to reserve you know gay or queer stories for teens or you know or adults. Um, but I just thought it, he shouldn't have to you know go the first 15, 18 years of his life without ever being exposed to a, uh, a gay character in, in what he's reading. So uh, I decided that I would sit down and write him a bedtime story so that at the very least, you know, he would have this one story that he could read at night if he wanted to and see uh, a, gay, a gay hero, a gay prince. Because, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I have no idea if my nephew will grow up to be gay or straight or bi or something else entirely. But yeah, I wanted him to sort of have that, 
have all of those options available to him as a child so that he, yeah, he's like, like I said, so that he wasn't encountering gayness late in life as this strange unknown thing that he'd never heard of before. And, you know, I just wanted to sort of demystify it and not make it so confusing. I just wanted to feel like a normal part of the, of his childhood landscape of like, yeah, some people have two moms, some people have two dads, some people have a mom and dad. Like it's all, I wanted him to sort of think all of those are completely valid options. Um, so I, I wrote him, I wrote The Two Princes as this, it was a pretty short story. Um, it was, it was certainly not as detailed as what the podcast ended up being. The, 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 the short story was basically the print, a prince runs away from home to go hunt dragons in the woods. He uh, finds another boy in the woods who also likes hunting dragons and they bond over their love of hunting dragons and they fall in love in the process of adopting a dragon and then they go home. And that's the whole, <laughs> that's the whole story. Gotcha. There's no, there's, there's, there's literally no drama, no monsters, no evil fathers, no evil spiders. It's literally just, they both love dragons, they fall in love over it and they, and they came home and everyone was happy about them getting married. <laughs> Although the, 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 their mothers were both in it. And their mothers, I have to say, were almost the way that I wrote the mothers in the short story is almost identical to how uh, uh, Lavinia and Atassa turned out in the, in the podcast. So it's, it's, it's interesting as a relic to see uh, what things from the very beginning just did not change and then what things I sort of drastically rewrote. But um, yeah, yeah, I ended up giving the short story. That was sort of my go-to gift when my friends started having kids over the last 10 years as they would... They'd have a baby and I'd, I would print out, I would, I would print out these sort of nice bound versions of the short story and I would, with illustrations and I would sort of give them to, to various uh, friends and couples as they had kids along the way. Oh, did you, you illustrated it? I did not illustrate it. I, I found um, <laughs> pictures online that I just thought would be sort of uh, these um, sort of beautiful old black and white sketches of princes and princesses was from old fairy tales. Um so I just, yeah, it's so, yeah, I, I, this is, I, 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 I completely stole other people's art, but this was, I did never <laughs> sold these books. This was just purely for like, in my own little world for just what I was giving to friends. I, you know, just print out these short story, this short story of the two princes and I would give it to uh, my friends as they had kids. And then, and then I sort of did that for a couple of years and then completely forgot about the story till a few years ago, till, uh, till I was chatting with the folks over at, at Gimlet and that's kind of how it the uh, idea got revived uh, uh, into making it into a podcast. I want to talk to you, before we get more into the history of, of how the show became the show, I want to talk to you about some of your other writing and getting into the headspace for writing for kids. Because I looked at reviews and synopses of some of your previous stage works, and they felt much more adult, right? Like a bitter taste. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, your graduate <laughs> thesis play is about a taped yes. sex act between a professor and an underage sex worker, and it's fallout. Ashes, ashes, from what I could find, is a dark comedy about two marriages under immense strain. And while The Chimes takes place at a boarding school in 1939, its themes of guilt, repression, and anti-Semitism seem to me a person who's never seen the play to be a much more like difficult mature drama so can you tell me about putting yourself in the headspace to write for children like were you imagining were you imagining jonah as the the audience for two princes or a younger version of you um yes actually that's well the, which question would you like me to tackle first uh tell me about putting yourself in the in the headspace yeah um yeah i i always joke it's if someone had said Ten years ago, I would be, I would, I would write a show for children. I would say that's, I'd be like, that's a little ridiculous. Have you seen my plays? They, <laughs> they are not family friendly. They are, they are anything but. They are complete one eighty in the opposite direction. Um, but you know, I, I think as writers, we change over time. And so, yes, the, um, you know, the angry young twenty year old who wrote. A bitter taste and you know had a I, I don't I, I don't want to say it's an angsty play but it's you know it's certainly a far more cynical play about the world and about human relations and that's I would say that was a sort of a common theme in a lot of my early especially in my in my theater writing is just um it's just a, a sort of a cynicism of about human nature and the inability of people to connect and even once they've connected just the sort of the brutal ways in which they'll betray and hurt each other um i always i always say to people i was like oh if you're seeing one of my like, i think one of the common thing themes in one of my in my plays is like the best friend always like betrays you it's like it's just like i was like if you it's like it's like it's like a it's like a stereotype almost at this point where it's like oh 
I was like, yeah, you know what's, a, you know, I wrote it. If the, if the, if the person you trust the most ends up like stabbing you in the heart, like, um, <laughs> I mean, there's definitely elements of that in two princes, right? Yeah. Every once. Yes. I, I would say with some of the adult characters, I get to work that, um, that cynicism in certainly. Yes. And now I got to do it in a more playful way. Um, well, I just mean that Amir receives Rupert's like deception as a, a kind of softened version of that. Oh my gosh, I didn't even think about that. That is so true. You're right. It's there. It's, it's in the two princes as well. You're right. This idea of like the person you've come to love and depend on the most is is your is your mortal enemy or is the person who is who either you have to destroy or is going to destroy you. Yes. Wow. I didn't even put that together. Boom. Wow. Good. Yes. Oh, good. I'm consistent. I'm consistent as a writer. This is going to be great. Future scholar is going to be like, in everything Kevin Snipes ever wrote. There it is. You have to beware. Beware the best friend. Beware the, beware the loved one. Uh, <laughs> um, but I do think over time, um, I think I'm deeply, still deeply cynical about adults. It's kind of hard not to be with the current political climate in our country. No, adults suck, man. <laughs> also, also the world. Yeah, exactly. Uh, right. It's, it's, it's hard to um have sympathy for most human beings once they're like over the age of 20 i'm just like oh but uh but then my nephews were born and i was like well they are delightful and they have done nothing wrong so far <laughs> um and it was weird to suddenly just be like oh well i love this person unconditionally and i have nothing bad to say about them and i only want the best for them and i want the world to be the best for them so i it was this very odd um a um, I don't want to say an about a moral about face or an ethical about face, but it was I yeah I think I just uh, allowed myself to acknowledge more of the good in the world and wanted to instead of um, just sort of in my writing emphasizing um, the more cynical aspects of humanity of of you know I the next step in my writing was to try and explore some of the more positive aspects and and to try and use my writing if I could to to try to make the world a better place so that I didn't have to rail against it so much. I was like, all right, maybe if I write some a, a beautiful story where love does conquer all, I was like, maybe if, if I put that out into the world, I can in some small measure try to make that happen as as opposed to just being like, well, people in love are going to destroy each other. <laughs> so... Um, so that's kind of how that, I think that transitioned happened in my writing. Um, there's another, there's another playwright, Peter Parnell. Um, I don't know if you're aware of his work, but, um, he wrote the children's book and Tango Makes Three. Oh, sure. Which is about the delightful the gay penguins. Yeah. So that was like, so before that, so that was actually one of the books that kind of inspired me to write The Two Princes originally. Cause that was like the only sort of gay picture book for kids that existed for the longest time, or at least the, the only one that I could find, you know, readily in bookstores. I think the other classic one is Heather Has Two Mommies. Yes. I have never, and I've, that, I've, I've never actually seen that in a bookstore, I no, have to say. No, like, me neither. Gay penguins are everywhere. Right. I think people, because I, I think penguins are le less threatening than adults, and I think, I think adults get scared to talk about anything involving sexuality with children, so it's like, they're penguins, they're adorable, it's fine. Mm -hmm. Whereas Heather Having Two Mommies is... Oh, those are human beings, and they're both ladies, and they, they love each other. What's you know? I think it gets iffy. Um, so I, I I don't know if that, but but yes, that's those are sort of the two I think classics that are out there. Um, and Peter Parnell is a playwright. I think I sort of he, there's also um, in some of his work there's a sort of a if his his plays are clearly for adults. Like he's writing for two different audiences, and I was sort of I was sort of inspired to see that that as a playwright, he you know his his stage work sort of went to these darker, um, more adult, more mature, cynical places, but then. You know, he was able with his with his children's literature to um, sort of adopt a whole sort of new persona, um, and I don't know. I mean, and I think I think a lot about it. I th I kind of think it's a healthy balance to have. Like I think if you're too Pollyanna-ish, that doesn't serve anyone. I think you have to be aware of sort of the blemishes in the world, and and uh, you know, I sort of I can't kind of get behind um, when things are too saccharine or too. I don't want to say too Disney because I do love a Disney movie more than anything sometimes. <laughs> but, of um, course. But, um, but there is, you know, I think it's, I think it's, I think it's good as a human being to sort of have this awareness of like, all right, there's a time and place for um, skepticism and cynicism. And then there's a time and a place for, uh, for sort of for hope. Um, I think that's sort of a healthy balance to try and have. 
don't think most of us have it. I certainly know I haven't achieved it, but I think that's kind of a good place to live of, of between those sort of two, those two uh, sort of thought, ways of thinking. And so to the second, the second part of the question, is there someone specific that you hold in your mind when you are writing for children? Is there like a goal audience or a specific, like personified as an individual that you imagine? You know, with specifically, well, when, it, when The Two Princes was just a, a short story, the, the audience was, was very clearly my nephew since it was only supposed to exist for him. Um, but when it came to adapt it into the podcast itself, uh, I actually sort of decided I would sit down and write the series. The, the question I sort of kept asking myself is what is the story that I wish I had had as a 10-year-old or as a 12-year-old or as a 16-year-old, you know, sort of growing up in a small conservative town in in Central Florida, um, you know, the sort of stories that were available to me were, or the s- stories with queer content that were available were sort of sort of slim to none. You know, this, we sort of had Will and Grace and Ellen were kind of like the two shows on TV, but that was like, that was it. And that was, you know, for adults. So when I sat down to write The Two Princes, I was like, okay, well, what, what do I wish I'd been able to see as a kid, you know, 20 years ago or God, it's more than 20 years ago, but let's say 20 years ago. Fine with me. <laughs> and it's also at the same time, well, what, I mean, and as much as it's about like, what do I wish I'd had 20 years ago? It's also about what do I wish I had, what do I wish I had right now? I mean, if I were a kid right now, there still isn't uh, very much queer content for children. There's, you know, there's, there's no Disney movie with, with a, with a queer princess or a queer prince. There's no, there's no, there are zero children's movies with with gay characters as leads or even supporting characters. I mean, Beauty and the Beast, the remake just sort of had made LeFou got to be openly gay in the remake, which I mean, great, we got LeFou. I don't know if that, <laughs> I don't know if that helped anyone. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's it's good, good. Like I guess we can't begrudge Disney for, for giving us crumbs. I mean, there might be there might be a couple of frames that hint at Elsa's queerness in Frozen Two. Yes, I I I I'm, I know we're all we're all rooting for Elsa. We're all rooting for Elsa to come out of the closet. I saw I saw an essay the other day that referred to it as like plausibly deniable, like Schrodinger's queerness. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> because like Disney needed to, you know, like it was alleged it was alleging, you know, Disney needs to balance its uh, business exigencies against an international market that's like even less queer friendly than the United States is. So they have to like make it all like a blink and you'll miss it plausibly deniable. It was it was interesting. I'll see if I can find it. Right, that's sort of like that coded context of like yeah, or you know, kind of like in the 50s and 60s with films like uh, like Rebel Without a Cause. It's like is James Dean and Salmini, or are they getting together? Or that you know, it's like it's it's there if you want it to be, and it's but it, yes, the studio could be like, no, what if they're just best friends? Come on. So it's that um, that's, yeah, um, which is it's a little, which I mean, I hope I'm sure I, I, I think it's great if Disney's doing that, but at the same time, you're kind of like, oh, it still kind of feels like crumbs from the table, you know? It's like there's right. Why do we have to sort of ship two straight characters into, you know, ship them to be gay. Like it's, it's sort of frustrating that we're still at that point in society. And, right. you know, I think of like, why, why crumbs when you can have a loaf? Yeah. Or like, you know, I, that the Harry, I mean, I, I love the Harry Potter novels. My nephews love the Harry Potter novels, so I will not say anything disparaging about them, but it's like, you know, we've had seven novels and two Broadway plays. And like the most we get is that, you know, Dumbledore is gay, except anywhere in the movers and you know it's like <laughs> it's entirely it's entirely extra textual. Yeah, exactly. So it's like you know the author has told us he's gay, so he is great. But it's at the same time, it yeah, it's it's sort of it still kind of feels like crumbs. Um, and so I was thinking when I sat down to write the two princes, I was like, okay, well now we don't have to. It's not crumbs. It's the main course. It's the whole. It's the whole meal. The whole meal is uh, is going to be queer representation and queer characters uh, getting to be the heroes, getting to save the day, and, and not only saving the day, but like saving the day with their queerness. Like it's it, you know the happy ending of the two princes only comes about because the boys embrace their love for each other, and that's what saves the day. Um, they don't have to you know kill a monster. They don't have to, and they do along the way. But the thing that ultimately saves the day is accepting themselves and, um, and falling in love with each other. Um, so it's sort of use you know, queerness as, as I don't want to say a weapon because that makes it sound dangerous, but you know, um, queerness as a, as a source of strength. Uh, I thought that was really important, uh, to sort of put that out there as like a completely, you know, valid heroic trope. And I hope 
I hope uh, it inspires other people to uh, to, to to adopt that uh, that mantle and be like, all right, more gay princes and knights and everything else in between. Yeah, something I I really appreciated about the two princes was the presence of the Lord Chamberlain as a a gay elder, which is not <laughs> something I think that you see a lot of in in media. Um, and I was curious if there has been someone in your life who was a Lord Chamberlain for you. Oh, gosh, I, that's a good question. I, I don't think so. Somewhere there's probably someone going, Kevin, no, I, someone being like, how dare you forget me? Uh, I, but I, I don't, I don't think so. I think if anything, I'm the Lord Chamberlain. Uh, You know, I feel like I'm the one trying to sort of, I'm the older generation that's trying to help the younger generation that's coming up. So in a way, the Chamberlain is sort of who I maybe wish I'd had growing up, someone like that. But I, I know I, I, I'd never had uh, an older figure like that when I was a child or growing up. I didn't have someone like that. But I, I think it's a useful, it can, uh, someone like that can be a very useful uh, ally for a young person to have. Absolutely. I mean, I think so many people in our approximate age cohort missed out on that, maybe because of the plague years. Like, I don't think we'll ever really be able to reckon with how many older, like, mentor figures that took from the queer community. Yeah, that's a really good point. I didn't even uh, think about that, about, yeah, I I just assumed it was geographically based because, you know, I I grew up in, like I said, in Central Florida, so I just assumed... You know, I sort of spent the 20, first 20 years of my life assuming I was the only gay person in a 50-mile radius. Um, but I think you're right, too, about, yeah, there was an entire generation that got wiped out that could have had the chance, that could have uh, filled that role of, of mentor. I have, a, I have a question about Florida, actually. Yes. So, so you grew up in Central Florida. You attended Stetson University. And when I looked up Volusia County on Google Maps, I was struck, as I always am, when I look at maps of Florida, by how swampy and green it was, and like big pine and bald cypress forests, and garlanded with Spanish moss. <laughs> when you imagine, when you imagine the forest at the heart of the two princes, what what does it look like to you? Um, that's so interesting. I never would have connected those two things, but now that I think about it. As a kid, I, I, with my friends, we would go traipsing through the swamps in our neighborhoods. And we would just, you know, there'd be like fallen trees over streams. And we'd try to, you know, walk across the fallen tree without falling into the stream, and which I could never do. I, w- I was always dirty and covered in mud when I would do that. But, <laughs> but you're right. Uh, Florida is sort of this, at least the part of Florida, I mean... I don't want to say I grew up in a, well, there's a lot of swamp in Florida. I was going to say, I didn't grow up in a swamp, but I kind of did. <laughs> Florida just kind of builds communities on top of swamp, swamps. Even very nice communities are, are always swamp adjacent, although we pretend they are not. Um, they're either swamp adjacent or beach adjacent. But uh, yeah, I, I, I do think a lot of my, um, a lot of how I was envisioning the world of the two princes, the, the, the forest was was drawn from that from those early days of, of trekking through mud and swamps with my friends and sort of that constant fear of like, is there going to be a gator or a snake? Or certainly there were spiders, certainly there were big bugs and things like that. But yeah, that, huh, I never would have thought about that, about Florida actually <laughs> shaping my writing in such a degree. But yeah, now that you bring that up, I think that's actually a really valid point. I think to me, it was the presence of vines in the Hollow of the Kings, where I was like, "Oh, this feels a little jungly to me. This doesn't just feel like a like a temperate pine forest, right?" You know, it it suggested to me that there were like lianas dangling from trees. Yes, exactly. Yeah, just sort of that's that sort of safari adventure of having to sort of thwack your way with a sword through, <laughs> sure. through like the giant palm fronds and the yeah the dangling vines and yep yeah, and your foot getting stuck in the mud and all that sort of um, yeah that sort of very safari quality. Why a forest? What does it mean to you that the forest is the thing that divides the two cultures in the show? Like, what is the mythic potential to you of, of setting something in the woods, of getting lost in woods? Um, on the, well, on the one hand, there's, it's such a fairy tale trope that you have to go into the forest. I mean, it's, that's where the adventure is. It's, sort of, it's, the, it's the leaving the safety of the civilized world, of your community, leaving behind culture, government, 
society and having to go off into this wild experience where where there are no where the rules are, are thrown out the window because there's no window to be had anymore. Um, so on the one hand, there's just that that's just that's just sort of the tradition, and I wanted to play with uh, as many fairy tale traditions as possible, but also put a new spin on them. So where was I going with this? And the other reason for the force? Oh yes, I always I I, I like to attend a lot of um, science lectures. Um, for fun up here in New York. And I was at this lecture recently and this scientist was talking about climate change. And um, one of the things he said is that, um, <laughs> with, you know, if, if, if worse comes to worse, he's, he's, he's like, he's like, he said, uh, the earth isn't going to be fine. It's humanity that'll be wiped out. The earth itself is going to be fine. The earth will adapt. The, earth will, <laughs> sure. you know, if the oceans rise or whatever. And, um, or the atmosphere gets stripped away. It's, you know, humanity will pay the price, but the earth as a giant rock floating through space, it's going to be, it's going to be around and some new form of life may develop in its place. So I was, I was sort of thinking of, of this idea of, of sort of, I sort of anthropomorphized the idea of the earth and be like, well, what if the earth was just got sick of humanity? And that's kind of within the two princes. What happens is that the, the land itself is like, all right, enough, enough between you two warring kingdoms, enough of this war between the East and the West. You know, there's, you spilt a lot of blood. We're sick of it. So until you can behave yourselves, boom, giant evil forest in between you. And if you don't clean up your axe, we're going to wipe you out completely. <laughs> so it was kind of the, this idea of the earth telling humanity, you're not good, you're not good enough to exist right now. And until you are, you're going to be separated and maybe wiped out. So that's that is kind of where the idea came from of 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 humans having to understand that they're part of a larger ecosystem and that that ecosystem does have a say in our future. And if we screw up the earth, it will get its revenge and it will go on existing without us if need be. Kevin, thank you for that perfect segue into my next question. Climate change? <laughs> Which uh well <laughs> What what were your touchstones? Like, as you imagined this fantasy setting, what were you taking in as a writer to invent this world and its its structures? And so these science lectures seem to me to be like one element of the the magical infrastructure that makes up the world. Yeah, I, I mean, I think a lot of the touchstones, as you say, are were fairy tales, just sort of growing up with both the Grimm's fairy tales, the Hans Christian Andersen fairy tales, and also uh, Disney fairy tales, which sometimes draw on those two other sources. But I think I sort of, as I might've mentioned before, I really wanted to take as many of those tropes um, from classic fairy tales and sort of spin them on their head. And in particular, I was, I, you know, I, I, you know, as a child of the eighties, I grew up on so many eighties and nineties, just like that sort of golden era of Disney of, of the little mermaid and Aladdin and uh, beauty and the beast. And then even, even the, I mean, I, my, my whole family is just, they, my family lives in Orlando right next to Disney and is obsessed with Disney. So I have spent many, many, many vacations at Disney and have seen many, many Disney films. Um, and so that's sort of ingrained in me, all of the, all of the different movies. Wait, is your family from Orlando proper or because I, I interviewed someone on the show who's actually from Celebration, Florida. Oh no, no, they they my uh, my father lives in Orlando now. He uh, originally um, uh, the 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 more the, the swamp I grew up in was um, um was a was a, a small East Coast town called uh, I don't want to say it. They'll be mad at me. I don't I don't want anyone in in my hometown to be mad if I call their town a swamp. <laughs> But it's was a, it Jupiter? It was not, but that is a very good okay. guess. <laughs> Thank you. We um, we do not have to we do not have to out the whistleblower. The prince pretending to be a thief. It's sort of like a reverse <laughs> Aladdin. Um, sure. Um, same beauty in the. I mean, well, most of his new films, it's it's a kiss that's required to break the spell, whether it's to wake the princess up or to in Beauty and the Beast, it's it's the kiss, um, true love's kiss that frees the entire kingdom from the spell. So there's. But instead of it being between a you know a beast and a and a beauty, it's again it's between uh, these two boys, uh, and even just like the maze of thorn and the brambles, it's you know I was realizing it's sort of a nod to uh, Sleeping Beauty when the Prince Philip has to get to Aurora. So there's there's so many sort of elements of those classic Disney films sort of revamped, 
Oh, and, and we haven't even sort of spoken about Joan yet, our, our Lady Knight, but just the idea of that the the the, the knight who's you know, the knight who goes off into battle. I mean, I guess it's a nod to Mulan, although I've never seen Mulan, so I can't. I'm not sure about that. But um, oh, it's good. It's very good. But uh, this yeah. Mulan is worth your time. Oh, I will have to check it. It has Harvey. It has Harvey Firestein in it. <laughs> Oh my gosh, that's as a talking what? Is he an, a human or an animal? As a human. Yeah, he's one of he's one of Mulan's like squad mates. Oh, that's hilarious. <laughs> uh so uh but yeah, but even just the idea of like, you know, we're sort of we're used to like the passive princess waiting to be rescued. And with Joan, the whole idea was, well, let's flip it on, on the flip it on its head and then and make her the person who dons the armor and goes off into battle and tries to tries to save the kingdom and is the, you know it's the girl rushing off into battle to save the boys uh just like the the, the the two queens same thing that's this teaming up of all the the characters that usually get stuck at home the mothers and the the stable girl and the princesses the the silly party girls it's like what happened if they decided to <laughs> to if they, you know if it was if it was them charging into battle um sure Asserting asserting their own agency over the narrative. Yes, exactly. Instead of waiting to be rescued, they're the ones doing the rescuing, or at least trying to do the rescuing, and having to sort of prove prove themselves in battle. Um, yeah. I love that. At, at the heart of the grove in The Two Princes, in the hollow of the kings, we, we're, we approach one of the central theses, I think, of the show. It's these two trees twisted around each other in a death grip, two kings locked in eternal combat. And something that I love to ask people when, when we bring them on RDR is about the curation of masculinities, interrogating ideas about manhood, violence, and patriarchy. And I'm, I'm curious what you wanted to say about the conflict engineered by Rupert and Amir's fathers and the way in which that conflict is resolved through love. Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, I, I think for the, a very long time, the kind of masculinity that the two kings represented has often been associated with the hero of a story. It's, it's, the, it's the king that goes off to war or is, who is often the hero in fairy tales and in the literature. I mean, it just goes, it goes back to King Arthur this, or, or any of those sort of uh, stories involving knights and kingdoms um, or Game of Thrones. I mean, there's, there's just the idea that, that um, uh, war and strength and conquest, all of those ideas are often have historically been portrayed as good things or at least or or can be good things in the right hands uh, or you know or, or that those are the those those virtues of 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 strength and a sort of unrelenting um determination and that those are the qualities that are that are that a hero has and with the two princes i wanted to just show the exact opposite that i mean the princes are obviously brave um and Amir certainly knows how to use a sword. You know, they ha- they have to have basic survival skills to get through the forest. But at the end of the day, none of that none of that matters. In fact, if they'd if they'd done what their fathers had wanted, if they'd if they'd used if they'd fought each other the way they were intended to fight each other, um, it would have would would have been disastrous. It's only the fact that they sort of lay down their swords and go in a completely opposite direction that allows them to have to achieve that happy ending. So it's it's putting aside those traditionally those traditional notions of masculinity, putting those to the side, and allowing other qualities to come to the forefront and um, to become part of what a hero can be. Does that make sense? Yeah, it really does. Yeah. So it was emphasizing teamwork and love and thoughtfulness and I mean, I, I'm hesitant to say like feminine qualities because those are qualities that we often associate with women. But they, you know, I don't I don't believe that any quality is ever is really like gender specific. Um, and they're sort of I think the qualities that both sexes uh, should have. I mean, I think everyone should try to be more <laughs> empathetic and kind um, and Although I was going to say, um, even though I don't consider those qualities necessarily feminine, those are qualities that are often associated with feminine, with female heroes. Uh, Dorothy in The Wizard of Oz, you know, she survives that entire ordeal uh, just by being really nice to people. And I think that's so amazing. I think it's one of my favorite stories because she's just really nice to everyone she meets. And so they help her. 
and that's and that's how she saves the day. And then um, it's sort of sim- same with um, Alice in Wonderland. She's in this crazy sort of messed up world, and she's just unfailingly polite to everyone until she finally puts her foot down at the end. But there's this this idea that like you can get through this strange, bizarre world by being kind and um, by joining forces with other people. I think that's such a lovely message. And it's a shame that it only sort of appears in stories where there's a female protagonist. So I loved, I, I really wanted to take that opportunity to take those qualities and put them in into two male protagonists. So what to what extent did the script change, if at all, after casting? Did you write characters with specific actors in mind? Um, she does not know this, but yes, uh, uh, Queen Otoso was written for Sheree who ended up playing her. That is the only character that was written specifically for an, uh, an actress or an actor. What a scoop. I, yes. And I mean, nobody, nobody knew her. That, that, that was just me being a super huge fan of the expanse and being obsessed with her. Well, her voice just has such a wonderful texture. I know her voice is amazing. <laughs> um, and and it was, yeah and yeah when I gave the scripts to Gimlet I was like I was like I think we need to have Sheree I was like I can't imagine anybody else other than Sheree doing this part and they were like well she's probably busy and she's out in LA I was like yeah but I think we need to get her <laughs> <laughs> um, and but we did and she was so sweet and I, I and it was kind of uh, she she told me this when she came in to record was that she had at this at, I think like within a week of us sending her the offer and the scripts. Uh, to see if she wanted to do it, um, one of her dear friends—I don't—I I don't know if it was a family member or a nephew or just a close family friend—but had said um, he asked her to officiate his wedding to another man, Aww. and so she was like, "She's like, well, this just seems like <laughs> it's too much of a coincidence to say no." So she, yeah, so she did the she officiated that wedding, and she um, came and did our podcast. So. That was, we were very, very lucky. We were very lucky. That's extremely good. But so Sheree was the only person I went into, like once the scripts were done, I went into Gimlet and I was like, you know, I think it has to be her. Um, I don't think we even like considered anybody else. It's, It's also, it's just such a specific part that the pool of actors available it was just sort of obviously her. And then everyone else, we sort of, um, uh, everyone else who was cast, um, it was sort of a, it was a conversation between uh, the director Mimi O'Donnell and myself, um, and that just sort of took place over time. But um, oh, you had asked if any of the if the script changed after casting. Um, n- n- no, we didn't have to do that. Partially because I mean, this is like when you know you have a good director. Is is that is that the the director and I were very much on the same page about almost everything. Um, and so we were, we were casting actors because they were right for the part as opposed to, I don't know, I don't know why people would cast someone who's wrong for a part, but you know, instead of picking actors because of their name or their status or anything else, or just because they were available or something like that, we were, we were very conscious about, all right, what does Rupert sound like and what qualities do we need in an actor? So with Rupert, you know, with Rupert, we were like, okay, we need someone who with impeccable comic timing, um, and a flair for drama and, um, so when we thought of Noah, we're just like, of course, of course it's Noah. I mean, there were just was things <laughs> like that. And we were in sort of in total agreement about almost all of the casting. Um, I don't think we ever disagreed about it. Um, so I, so that was like, so to sort of answer your question, like we didn't, we didn't really have to change anything because we, we cast people who were just sort of, we thought would just be perfect for each role. And we also had the luxury with some of our actors that we, you know, we initially, I mean, Gimlet sort of treated this almost like a play in the early stages and that we had, um, we had table reads and studio reads before we actually began the casting process. So we got to like, you know, we sat around in a conference room and we read all seven, or at the time it was eight episodes. So that's one thing that did change is it went from eight episodes to seven because I overwrite a ton. And we had, <laughs> by the time we finished chopping it all down to, um, we were down to seven episodes. But we did have these opportunities to um, to do table reads and studio reads and share the script before we actually recorded anything. And along the way, we sort of ended up, that's how we um, ended up with uh, Alfredo Narciso and Mandy Masden, who play... Um, the Lord Chamberlain and Barabbas and Cecily and Crazy Tooth, respectively. We asked them to come in and um, uh, just do a, a table read, and they were so 
funny <laughs> that we were like, well, that's, that solves that problem. Um, done. Cast it. Good. Um, yeah, that's kind of how casting went. So both you and Mimi O'Dell used to work at, at Labyrinth in new play development. You received submissions from writers and you helped them usher their work into production. And then Mimi left Labyrinth in 2017, I think, to join Gimlet. What's the story of you following suit? When did you join her at Gimlet? Or is that an accurate way to... Yeah, yeah. yeah no, she, yeah, she, um, when she left Labyrinth, she, her next position was at, was at Gimlet, um, heading up their, they call it scripted content, I believe, over there, scripted content, which is their fancy way of saying audio drama or, you know, podcasts with actors. Um, that's the thing is we're always trying to think of like, what's a better, sexier term? Because it, it's, I mean... Uh, I mean, this is a thing that we, we talk about all the time. So Neil Verma, who teaches at uh, Northwestern, uh, told me, and this is something that I like to like sit on and repeat to myself as a mantra when I get too nuts about it, is that a medium in a naming crisis is a productive medium. <laughs> okay, good. Yes, I mean, it's it's kind of amazing how much uh, podcasts have boomed over the last, uh, just last couple years. So everyone is getting in on the action. And it's funny too, I mean, just like, you, you, would, you would think like movie stars and TV stars and Broadway stars would have other things to do like movies tv and broadway but the amount of 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 actors who are willing to do it is kind of um amazing um i think that's partially what's sort of helping to change change the game so mimi went to gimlet and i think she was there for about a year because i think it was in 2018 where we we stayed in touch after going our separate ways from labyrinth um you know we i i loved working with her at Labyrinth. She's, she was an amazing artistic director, and I was so excited when she got the job at Gimlet because it's sort of that same skill set of identifying you know, good stories, good writers, um, and, and casting it well. So in this time, she'd be, just be doing it in a slightly different um, medium. So, yeah, so it was great working with her at Labyrinth, and so we'd stayed in touch. And then, um, yeah, she just periodically would sometimes get lunch or just be chatting and... Um, I think it was in May of 2018. I was like, how are things? How's Gimlet? And she's like, good. She's like, oh, she said she was trying to find, um, she wanted to do a, a kid's show, but it was really hard to find, uh, you know, good quality content for kids. And I said, I know. I was like, I, I, I told her the whole story about my nephew and like children's books. And I was like, you know, I was like, when my nephew was born, I didn't, I couldn't find any good queer themed children's books. So I ended up writing one myself. And she was like, wait, you have a, you have a queer themed children's show? And I was like, or a book? And I was like, well, yeah. And I sort of told her more about it. And, and the more we talked about it, I, I, she, um, she got sort of more intrigued by the idea. So it wasn't even like an official like pitch session. It was just the two of us sort of um, lamenting about the state of, of quality children's shows and how we were trying to fix that. So that's kind of how it came about is that I sort of mentioned the idea to her and she said, well, can you flesh that out into a, could you, could you make a series out of that? Cause I, you know, I told her it was just like a, you know, a five page story where all they did was find a dragon and fall in love. She said, could you, you know, expand that? And I was like, certainly. Um, so that is kind of how I ended up coming back, uh, uh, sort of working with her again. Um, it was just from that sort of rather random phone conversation. That's really sweet. Yeah. So, um, yeah, she's a really, just a really great collaborator um, for, for writers. So this interview will come out after the second season of, of The Two Princes, after that drops, um, which I understand features a wicked sorceress who drives Rupert and Amir from their home just before their wedding. Yes. Um, what, what themes are you looking to explore in the second season? Um, the second season, that's a really good question in terms of the... Th- um, I always think about this story in terms of, 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 of new ways of exploring the characters. And the second season is very much about what happens when the dynamic between two people who know each other uh, suddenly changes. So the second season, we're really looking at Rupert and Amir's relationship when there's something that happens. I'm not going to give away any spoilers, but in the first episode, uh, something happens that sort of drastically alters uh, the boy's relationship. And it, so the season becomes about what do you do when the person you thought you knew is no longer that person anymore? Can you still love them or do you have to change with them? 
and it's sort of exploring that idea of what what when one person changes, do you change with them, or or is that or is that a deal breaker? So that sounds so heavy. Gosh, that's like they made it sound so serious. <laughs> it sounds like it's like a podcast should be like you know people in their thirties or forties who are like <laughs> who are dealing with unhappy spouses. It's like oh, um, it's actually. I mean, it's it's a lot more lighthearted than that. It's it's you would ask about uh, about the concept of forests and what it sort of represented in the first season and. Um, and I said the I you know that the forest is a, is a very going into the forest is a very popular trope in fairy tales. And um, one of my favorite musicals is Into the Woods, which explores that trope of what happens when people have to go into the woods and encounter new things. And um, I will say that season two um, has a bit of a Into the Woods vibe of Rupert and Amir having to uh, track down various magical items that they need to um, assemble in order to defeat the sorceress. So we have a, it's very much um, sort of a, a modern day twist on the, on the Into the Woods story, um, but with our two princes. Very cool. Uh, in an Instagram post from a couple weeks ago, you debuted a piece of fan art of Lady Cecily wearing a gown in the colors of the Bi flag, which was extremely cute. Um, <laughs> yes. Can, can you tell me how you want to expand representation in the second season? Y- yes, I, I was. So with any story, um, you, you, you obviously want it to be, oh, at least I shouldn't speak for all writers. When I write a story, I want it to be as inclusive as possible. Um, and that's not always, the, the confines of a story don't always make that possible. You know, with the first season, we had seven episodes to, to tell our story, which meant most of the emphasis kind of had to be on the two boys, the princes or their mothers. And so while I was able to explore um, this romance and this love between two boys, um, it didn't really leave, that, 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 was, that, was the, um, that was the main emphasis. That's what I wanted to do. That's what I wanted to set out to do. And that's what I did. Um, and now, now that we had the chance for a second season, um, I wanted to try and explore more um, dynamics and more relationships. And so, you know, if, since the first season we had is this queer male couple, um, I wanted to introduce um, a few um, bi or lesbian characters into the second season so that the show can be a little bit more inclusive. Um, you know, most, I think traditionally, mo- when there are shows, whether they're films or TV shows um, or even podcasts, when there is a queer narrative, it does tend, I think gay men tend to uh, have a majority of the storylines. And just so as a writer, I wanted to be aware of that and sensitive to that and open the world up a bit more so that, yes, we still have the princes, they're still driving the story, they're still the main characters, um, but I also wanted to uh, incorporate queer female representation into the story some. So, yes, yeah, so Cecily comes out as bi in the second season. Long, it's, it's a long way to say Cecily comes out as bi in the second season. And when I knew there was going to be a second season, that was something I immediately planned for Cecily. But at, this, at the same time that I was planning that, I, I noticed a lot of um, the, the, the fans on their own had come to that conclusion, which was a nice piece of... Uh, of a uh, coincidence that um, the the feedback I was getting from fans was uh, they were shipping Joan and Cecily very 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 hard online, which I thought was funny because I was like they they don't have that many scenes together, but um, right. I think it just shows you how starved yeah, people are totally right for any yes exactly it's for any sort of queer content it's you're right. Um, so Cecily is now by and. I should clarify that her her romantic journeys are not easy ones, and <laughs> I think uh, the second season is only the the beginning of um, Cecily and Joan's journey. I will say, Kevin, this was an absolute pleasure. Well, thank you, thank you so much for having me. This was a lot of fun. You can hear an extended cut of this interview by becoming a patron of Radio Drama Revival at the $3 a month level, but we're delighted to have you at any level of giving. Welcome to new patron Leslie. It is an honor to be one of your choices for this year. May we continue to share knowledge and recipes for a long time to come. That's patreon.com slash radiodramarevival. And now, here it is, my friends, your moment of will. Hello, listener. In our last Moment of Will, I recommended Carry On by Rainbow Rowell, a queer young adult fiction fantasy book that I absolutely love. 
This week, I'm going to bring you another. One of my favorite series, The Raven Cycle by Maggie Steve Fader, features a queer romance at its core. It's kind of a slow burn, so if it doesn't feel quite there for you in the beginning, stick with it, I promise. The Raven Cycle is narrated by a character named Blue. She's descended from psychics, and when she encounters a group of boys from a local private school who are obsessed with ley lines and dead Arthurian kings, she finds herself trapped in a world she didn't really ever want to be. It is, admittedly, a little bit darker in tone than both The Two Princes and Carry On. However, if you're into that sort of dark, strange, fantastical, mystical, but modern-day fantasy, I can't recommend it highly enough. Again, that's The Raven Cycle, starting with The Raven Boys by Maggie Stiefvader. I'll link that below because it's a little hard to spell. I feel that. And hey, listener, 2019's been kinda rough. I felt it. I'm sure you felt it. We've all kinda felt it. But I have really good feelings about 2020. That's not me being cute for this little end bit. That's a genuine thing I've been feeling. I think 2020 is going to be a good one. And I think it's going to be a good one for you too. And now let us sound the traditional end of episode gong, followed by the sound of a great thousand-ton stone calendar grinding into position, leaving this decade behind. Onward to a new year. Onward to hope and promise. Onward to new beginnings. Onward to a decade where I won't have songs from cats stuck in my head. Will, you know how it is, right? Okay, yeah. Take it away, gong and calendar. The sounds of that gong and that great stone calendar tell me it's time for the credits. This podcast is recorded in Washington, D.C., which is the unceded territory of the Piscataway Indian Nation, the Piscataway Kanoi Tribe, the Pamunkey People, and the Nanticoke People. If you live in the Americas, Australia, or New Zealand, you can learn more about the native, First Nations, or indigenous heritage of your area by visiting whose.land. Our theme music is Danger Diggy Doo by DJ Stranger Danger. You can find his music on SoundCloud. Our line producer and associate interviews producer is Will Williams. Our senior interviews producer is Eli McElveen. Our associate producer is Sean Howard. Our researcher is Heather Cohen. Our social media manager is Ann Baird. Our submissions editors are Elena Fernandez-Collins and Rashika Rao. Our executive producer is Fred Greenhalge. I'm your host, David Reinstrom, and this has been Radio Drama Revival. All storytellers welcome. Happy New Year, friends. <laughs>